Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This episode covers connections between Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. Now, I've had several episodes in the past that I've said are among the longest on this podcast. Vertigo is pretty long. Sweet Hereafter was also pretty long. But this, I think, has got to be the longest. <laughs> this is much longer than I remembered it being when I went back and visited, uh, revisited it to present it to the public. It was originally recorded for patrons back a couple years ago. And I wanted to bring this out now because on my public uh, Lost in Twin Peaks, or sorry, Lost in the Movies podcast, I also have an episode on Blue Velvet as a standalone film, just talking about it as its own thing. And uh, that, you know, that was uh, released to the public years ago, around the time that I recorded this for patrons, in fact. And I also, just this month on uh, Lost in the Movies feed, have a episode on the documentary Blue Velvet Revisited. So this is a tie-in to that. You can listen to both of those episodes for much more on this film, but even this one alone contains quite a bit. So in addition to discussing the movie's uh, connections to Twin Peaks, I also talk about a specific Twin Peaks storyline, Jean's Revenge on Cooper, and I relate that to Blue Velvet. And then I have a section near the end where I talk about some of the special features on the Criterion disc. I thought those were worth digging into as well, in addition to the whole Twin Peaks connection here. So uh, even without those sections, this would be quite a long episode. But with those, it's, I think, going to be the longest on the Twin Peaks cinema feed. So I hope you enjoy. And uh, please send in any feedback you have on Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, anything else, past episodes of this podcast. Always happy to read them on the air. Uh, Before we get into the episode proper, I want to review some of what I've been up to uh, elsewhere in terms of podcasts and also Twin Peaks work. Uh, For podcasts, I mentioned the previous Twin Peaks Cinema episode that I was still working on a Patreon uh, episode, and uh, I forgot to mention at that point I already had part of it out, but now I've got the whole thing out, so I'll read them all here. Uh, This was episode 99. I have a prologue called Zeitgeist Fiction, Teens Archive, where I read works that I've written in the past about the 2010s films, you know, both around the time they came out and also looking back after the fact. And then episode 99A is called 50s Bonus. Uh, Let's see here, concluding the zeros in the 60s. So I was doing a decade series on this podcast where I talked about films from different decades, both full-on film reviews, call them Films in Focus, and also Capsules. So here's the full title of that one. All That Heaven Allows, plus Capsules on Jailhouse Rock, Sweet Smell of Success, Shane, From Here to Eternity, Bell Book and Candle, The Manchurian Candidate, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Departed, Mystic River, The Descent, Saw, Idiocracy, Anchorman, Zoolander, Fahrenheit 9-11, Archive Readings of Some Came Running, Kiss Me Deadly, Funny Face, plus media, uh, feedback, media, work updates, including a goofy movie and more. And then the second main part of this episode, episode 99B, was called The Teens in January and Beyond, Under the Skin, plus capsules on Jurassic World, Knives Out, American Sniper, Mad Max, Fury Road, It Follows, Personal Shopper, The Phantom Thread, Fahrenheit 11.9, Uncut Gems, Gravity, Straight Outta Compton, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, The Big Short, Joy, Mother, Fruitvale Station, Carol, The Witch, Hereditary, The Love Witch, Looper, 13th, Snowden, Birdman, Bridesmaids, Baby Driver, The Great Gatsby, John Wick, Archive reading of The Force Awakens and more. Both of these episodes were like three and a half hours long. So if you want to become a patron, dollar a month, you get access to not just these, but years and years of 
very long podcast. And then I also put out a uh, epilogue for episode 99, which was uh, Olympics uh, documentaries about the Olympics from the uh, teens. It's called the Decade of Olympics Teens Archive. So 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, and 2018. And then a coda on the 2022 broadcast. So these were works that I wrote uh, about a year ago, and I share them in an audio format now. Additionally, I had a Twin Peaks Conversations episode that went up this month, interview with uh, the creator of Twin Peaks Grammar. His name's Anthony. We had a great conversation, a public part on YouTube, and then a back part on Patreon, exclusive, exclusive to patrons. I also put out an episode 100 uh, public bonus, so like those two other archive episodes I mentioned, uh, which are also open to the public, even though they're on Patreon. This one, since I'm reading past works, is on there. It covers films from the 40s, the 30s, and the silent era. So you can check that out too, all on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Additionally, on that site, I have some Twin Peaks character series advances, where I provide um, previews of entries, like the full entries coming up, uh, through number at this point through number 42 so uh, you can check those out i also have public uh, entries going up every monday wednesday and friday and uh those that have gone up you know since the last uh, time that i updated you on this are betty briggs at number 73 blackie black rose blackie o'reilly at number 72 fbi chief of staff denise bryson at 71 carl rod at 70 andrew packard at 69 hutchin chantel hutchins at 68 sam colby and tracy barbarato is 67 these are ranked by screen time by the way if you're wondering why the random order deputy chad broxford at 66 ernie niles at 65 jacques renault at 64 freddie sykes at 63 and just one up was uh, the singer at number 62, the Roadhouse singer, Julie Cruz, of course. So some of these are just entries from 2017. I wrote a new intro for them, but they're intact because the characters don't appear in season three. Other ones are revised to reflect new material from season three. And many of these are just pure season three characters. So this is part of this series I'm putting up. It's a written series, not a podcast series. Um, and then I guess to round it out in terms of podcasts, I did put up an episode of the Lost in the Movies podcast, but I mentioned that already. It's the Blue Velvet Revisited uh, this month. So it ties directly into this episode. So with that, let's get into Blue Velvet. Into the magic It's dark. Are you the one that found the year? One name that keeps coming up is this woman singer. The first thing I need is to get into her apartment. There's never been a more direct Twin Peaks cinema than this one. This is really the soil that Twin Peaks grew directly out of. I would say it's almost hard to understand Twin Peaks as an act of creation without Blue Velvet, without knowing this film. It doesn't seem like it comes out of nowhere the way it does when you just tune into the pilot and like, wow, this whole world is created here. You can see all the seeds in Blue Velvet. In this film, I've already described the plot and talked about it on its own, so you can check that out. It's linked below if you want to hear more about that. But we're going to jump right into those those Twin Peaks connections. And uh, in this film, I think you see 
the elements there it is it's more elemental you see them kind of pared down to their basic concept of like a detective a mysterious woman this kind of psychopathic presence darkness a small town with dark things underneath and then twin peaks gets to expand on that so when the when twin peaks was even when the agent was presenting lynch and frost with the idea of it he said something like twin peaks meets peyton place or twin peaks on tv or this or that and a lot of the press around the film, which we'll read some samples of, discussed it in that way as well. But creatively, um, not just in the story, but actually the texture, this is also the beginning of a lot of Twin Peaks elements here. Musically especially, this is the birth of Twin Peaks. This was Lynch's first collaboration with Angelo Badalamenti. And up to this point, I think it's safe to say music was not the element of his films that it would become. You have specific little motifs like in Eraserhead, you have the Fats Waller song that the lady in the radiator or that plays as they're closing in. And then of course in the radiator, she's singing in heaven and uh, dancing around. So you have that, that kind of element to it, but there's not much. It's mostly like industrial sounds throughout in uh, the elephant man. You have Adagio for strings. And then in Dune, you have the music of Toto, so they have their scores, they have their song selections, but it's not at all what it starts to become with Blue Velvet, which is when Angelo Badalamenti was brought in to train Isabella Rossellini to sing. And it was also happenstance. There's a great interview on the Criterion disc where he talks about it. And it's like, yeah, I was going to go to a car auction that day. I've been saving up for an $800 car. And I was like, eh, I don't think I'm going to go when like his producer buddy called. And he was like, no, no, come down, come down to... Uh, North Carolina from, you know, New Jersey, New York, where he was. And so at this point, you know, Angelo Badalamenti's in his 50s. He's been working for years. He's got his experience in theater, in black exploitation films, actually, in the 70s, in pop music. He's not really part of the Lynch world or what you would think of as being the Lynch world, but he goes down. He trains Rossellini. He brings Lynch the tape. Lynch likes it. And then they're trying to get a song to replace a song to the siren, which Lynch can't get there. Dino De Laurentiis can't get the rights to. It's too expensive. And of course, he ends up using it brilliantly in Lost Highway. But they so they decide to go for something else that's ethereal. And and so he collaborates with, with Badalamenti, like, hey, here's some lyrics and just these words that Badalamenti can't make much of. Just like a poem that doesn't even rhyme on the page. It's like, okay, what do I write for the melody? And Lynch starts describing a mood and an atmosphere, waves, the ocean, endless. And he starts to get a feeling and he writes it like that. And that produces mysteries of love. They find Julie Cruz, the singer, who is more of a belter. She's like a, a Broadway or off-Broadway kind of a musical theater person, loud show tunes. And, there, and and she's selected to try and recruit a singer who can sing in this high, angelic way. And they can't find anyone. She goes, well, I, I could try to do it. So she ends up doing it in the style she's never done that becomes her signature style. So these three people come together here in Blue Velvet in this totally happenstance way. And that produces all of the gorgeous music that we hear in Twin Peaks. They, they produce their album Floating in the Dark a year or two later, which then basically is converted into the soundtrack of Twin Peaks. The theme song is actually falling without the lyrics from that album. And so this is where that comes into play. Now, in addition to that uh, musical element, we also have Dwayne Dunham editing for Lynch for the first time. He'll continue on to Wild at Heart and Twin Peaks and come back for season three, directing episodes of Twin Peaks. 
This is where Mary Sweeney comes on as an assistant to Dwayne Dunham. And of course, she will eventually become Lynch's partner further down the line. Of course, he romances Isabella Rossellini at this time, but he will eventually leave her for Mary Sweeney, have a child with her, live with her for like 15 years. They briefly marry at the end of their relationship. But most importantly, for our purposes, she is his creative collaborator for that whole time. Uh, I've done a whole video, which I'll link below about their work together and the impact that I feel their collaboration had because she had her own sensibility. Um, at this point, she's just basically performing a mechanical function more for, for Dwayne Dunham, but this is where she comes into the Lynch first. And then also Joanna Ray, the casting director. I don't think she had worked on any Lynch films before this, and she becomes a huge part of his a staple with her whole catalog of actors that she brings to him for Twin Peaks. And of course, I forgot to mention with Mary Sweeney, of course, she edits the Killer's Reveal episode of Twin Peaks. So that becomes her involvement with that show. In addition to, I think she's a might be a script supervisor at one point for it. She edits that one episode as well. And so Joanna Ray comes in as casting and uh, she, I think, brings some people into the fold who will remain there. Uh, probably Francis Bay, the uh, the aunt Barbara in this in this uh, film I love her part in this she's so funny she's a little bit of a dotty old woman who lives with uh, Jeffrey and their family and uh, she goes on to play Mrs Tremont in Twin Peaks and of course Jack Nance who Lynch already had known from Eraserhead he is uh, one of Frank's gang kind of hanging around and saying strange things with them as he as he hovers in the in the sort of the background there. And he, of course, goes on to play Pete Martell in Twin Peaks. And then Laura Dern, who was not involved with the original seasons, but comes back as Diane. And that really relates strongly to Blue Velvet, I feel, uh, in ways that we'll discuss. And, of course, the star of the film, Kyle MacLachlan, who Lynch first cast in Dune. This really solidifies his career as this naive young man just out of college discovering the darkness of the world. And three years later, he'll be playing an experienced FBI agent. How quick that transition from this almost like male ingenue role in Blue Velvet to the just full-on mature leading man in uh, Twin Peaks three years later. And of course, it's interesting to imagine if Isabella Rossellini had taken the part of Josie, which she was originally going to play, and she decided she just couldn't do a TV show. So they cast Joan Chen instead. But it could have taken that, uh, really that all of Twin Peaks in a whole different direction because if you have Rossellini around and she's got this kind of chemistry with McLaughlin, which they knew she had from Blue Velvet, and the original plan was to have Cooper and Josie have a romance and then maybe Harry gets jealous, so there's nothing with Audrey. It leads in this more Blue Velvet similar direction. So it'd be interesting to see if that happened in some alternate universe. If you have a show that stays kind of in the Blue Velvet mode, because I feel like in some ways Twin Peaks starts there, but then it, I think it departs in a lot of ways. Blue Velvet is the launching pad for it. But then there are other ways that Blue Velvet keeps recurring. So I would say in the first season of Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet is primarily reference point for the iconography and the plot points. So there's like just things that have little investigative ticks, people doing or or acting certain ways that recall Blue Velvet, whether it's like hiding in a closet or sneaking into somebody's room when they're not there, even just looking through the, the pictures and the, the, the sort of seedy criminal milieu with Jacques Renault, all that stuff, you know, it's, it's very reminiscent of Blue Velvet on the, on the surface, I would say. And the, the idea of a small town with dark secrets, obviously, very Blue Velvet. The teenagers dressing like it's the 50s, very Blue Velvet. So iconography and plot points in season one. In season two, I think then it becomes a little deeper and it's more about the themes. So as we discover who Laura's killer is, the darkness 
in the home, the sort of twisted relationships with the family, that all kind of plays out in ways that remind us and, and actually deepen what we experienced in Blue Velvet with Frank and Dorothy and Jeffrey, where there's a sort of a symbolic, you know, disturbed family, but on the symbolic level, like they're not actually family members, whereas in Twin Peaks, incest itself comes into the into play. And then in the third season of Twin Peaks, I think the touch points are the actors, specifically Kyle MacLachlan and uh, Laura Dern and their relationship 30 years later, no longer these kids, but these people in middle age with all this water under the bridge. And then certain motifs come into it and the psychology uh, in some ways keeps playing out in the third season. We'll talk about that as well. But it becomes more just sort of these discrete points uh, within the season that uh, may not all be connected to one another, but they all run deep individually. And then in Firewalk With Me, the film, the interesting thing about its relationship to uh, Blue Velvet is that there's a kind of a reversal of perspective. Uh, it feels like in some ways, you know, this is now, if, if we started off with Jeffrey looking out at Dorothy, now we're with the Dorothy character, who is Laura, and totally experiencing it through her eyes, this this trauma, which I've talked about a lot. That's probably been the main way that I've talked about Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet before. But, you know, when you look at this grand arc, especially in the original Psycho from the pilot to Firewalk With Me, I think it's even more profound if you look at Blue Velvet as that kind of beginning, starting with the Blue Velvet and then going to taking that all the way through to Firewalk with me. And then, you know, in, with season three as a further riff on that. There are a lot of contrasts between Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, which in some ways are just as compelling as the comparisons. There are fewer explicit parallels to Twin Peaks, I would say, in the back half of Blue Velvet. I think once we get past the premise and the setup, the way it unfolds is different. You know, it's just, it's a film. It's not a TV show. And also the styles are different. I mean, you have widescreen, this broad, very 50s melodrama kind of look with the rich colors and stuff of Blue Velvet, and a mu more muted palette on Twin Peaks with uh, the Academy ratio for TV, of course, the, the four to three uh, squarish frame versus this long, elongated rectangle that's that uh, feels so cinematic, you know, in a cliched way, but it's true. You also have an interesting, if you're going to relate these to other surrealist films, I would say by the end of Twin Peaks in particular, it's become more of like, and even maybe early on with the Red Room and stuff and just the way they move, the characters move and the kind of flow of it. I think of it as comparing to Maya Darren, her films like Meshes of the Afternoon, where it's all very choreographed. It's more... Uh, you know, if I'm going to be reductive and tie these uh, avant-garde modes to different uh, psychological traditions, I would relate that to uh, the, more of the Jungian sensibility. And then the other surrealist director who comes to mind, particularly Blue Velvet, is Louis Bunuel, who I would relate personally to more of a Freudian thing. He was much more of a secular figure. He was, um, you know, Darren was involved with like voodoo and stuff like that. So she had more of a spiritual uh, interest, I think. And he's more of a, like his surrealism, Bunuel's, it's got this kind of dryness to it. This, uh, it's, it's a little more cerebral in a way. And I see that as relating more to Blue Velvet. So, uh, you know, Blue Velvet, Bunuelian, uh, Twin Peaks, Darren-esque maybe. And of course, in Blue Velvet, you have that specific image of the ants crawling on the ear that's severed lying in the field, which recalls the ants crawling on, I think it's a hand, lying in the street in Unchien Angelou, the 
uh, Bunuel film that he made with Salvador Dali in the 1920s, which Lynch has said is like the only Bunuel film that he's actually seen. Another interesting contrast between these works is the rise and the fall of their reputation. McLaughlin actually credits Pauline Kael with rescuing Blue Velvet, says that initially when it came out, critics and audiences didn't know what to make of it. It had a horrible test screening and it seemed like it was maybe going to fail. And Isabella Rossellini was really upset. And then at some point when it came to New York or whenever it was that Pauline Kael wanted to write about, it, she wrote about it and was like, this is actually a fascinating film. And it, it kind of exploded from there. Suddenly it was hot stuff which led directly into Twin Peaks with the pilot getting through the roof praise, and then that all faded by the end. So it's a parabola, basically, from Blue Velvet up to the pilot to down again to, you know, by that end of Firewalk With Me. So so they kind of experienced a reverse in that way, although at this point, both works are very uh, well-regarded. Again, to return to the style, though, this is a steadier film. This is is more, like, I, I, there's not, there's some camera movement, but it's a little more quiet. And you, you do see that more on the show, I think, where the contrast really emerges stylistically is with Firewalk With Me, where you have this really fluid uh, style, both to the montage and the camera movement. Although it's worth noting that Blue Velvet, I, I believe, was the first time Lynch used a steady cam when Cal uh, McLaughlin's going up those steps into uh, Dorothy's apartment you're kind of following along there and uh, the guy the steadicam operator actually talks about it on the the Criterion interview which is great and this is still rooted at this point in the 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 kind of Lynch sensibility it's still rooted in like meticulous granular focus you see in those earlier works eraser head elephant man even though it's more colorful even though there's a lighter side to it even though it takes place in something sort of closer to the present day real world than his first three films do. Uh, he hasn't really hit that expansive register yet in production or in conceptual terms. So it's more, it's tighter. It's just a tighter film. And even when you look at all the deleted scenes, they're all kind of related to that through line. They don't feel as tangential as some of the wild at heart or Twin Peaks stuff does. It's funny at the end of the film, when we see the, the, child Dorothy is reunited with her son and he's coming into her arms and I realized I never really thought about the family's experience like what are they going through this whole time the husband the son they just seems so much like a device it's really more about Dorothy's psychology but when you think about it it's like yeah they're kept in this room this whole time like what does the kid think is going on these guys yelling they're taking his dad away and then his dad comes back with like a scarred up ear and then he's eventually killed and like, what are they experiencing through all this? It reminds me that there's so much unseen in Blue Velvet, much more so than with Twin Peaks, where eventually, you know, even though there's hidden corners, you're, you're always lifting up rocks and looking underneath. And with Blue Velvet, it feels like we're only, even with all these crazy things we see in the film, we're only still skimming the surface of all of it. It's just the fact that it's the self-contained feature film means it has to be more limited in a way. Although even later Lynch films feel much more blown open in terms of what we're given access. To. And finally, one big difference between Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet that's the most significant in some ways is that in Blue Velvet, the crimes don't happen in the home, except for Dorothy's uh, presence when she's naked. And the kind of, and that is really the idea of this criminal world transgressing on the home, coming in from outside and imposing upon it. Uh, so, there's an uneasy tension in 
in blue velvet where it's like okay we dive under the dirt and we see all the bugs when the dad falls down and in the beginning but really it's not about the intermingling quite so much it's about the side by side and the threat that this darkness imposes on this lighter happier world but they are distinct and that is very much shattered in Twin Peaks and especially Firewalk with me in both films there are these fluid psychodramatic connections where certain elements are reflections of other elements or they they play off of them in this intuitive way there's a lot of examples of this to start with both laura and dorothy they have this power to make men and boys do things but then they're also under other people's power Uh, sometimes it seems even those people who they're able to overpower and that is a kind of a a paradox that Lynch is deeply fascinated with and has talked about to the extent he talks about any of the themes that interest him. He has talked about that in in interviews. There's a constant shifting of power dynamics, uh, more broadly, this idea of who's taking advantage of or even assaulting whom in that first scene and also afterwards. Uh, by the first scene, I mean the one where Jeffrey first of all is trespassing in this house and spying on this woman as she's naked and uh, then when she discovers him, suddenly she's stripping him down. And it's funny how we don't think of it as like a rape, but that's essentially what's happening here, which is this stranger, she's forcing him by knife point to strip down and touching him and all of this stuff. And then because immediately afterwards, suddenly she's almost protecting him, putting him in the closet as Frank comes in and is assaulting her that dynamic almost gets buried further. But that's something that's there as well. And it's there not so much with any of the Laura stuff we see, but we do in the diary have a similar dynamic between her and Harold, where she's like saying that she forced herself on him because he couldn't leave the room. And so there's this really complex idea of of who is a victim and who is a perpetrator going on here. And it's particularly gendered, I think, as well, with the, the sort of societal expectations of, well, if it's a man doing it versus if it's a woman. But it's like within this film, all of that is compressed together really closely in this one sequence. Kyle MacLachlan himself describes this in a documentary, Mysteries of Love, that's on the disc, the complicated feelings that the character of Jeffrey has about all of this, where he says he's fascinated by the self-destructive chanteus. This beautiful, voluptuous, I think it's a mixture of wanting to take care of as well as to desecrate. He has the same impulses and may be thinking that maybe by caring for her, she'll be his. And somehow he'll be able to devour her, you know, at the same time being devoured by her. The seesawing power dynamics, I think, is the way in which Blue Velvet most effectively uh, paves the way for... Uh, Twin Peaks. And I think in a way, it's almost more morally complicated here than it eventually becomes in Firewalk with me, where it's more about the moral accountability of Leland and Laura discovering a power that is actually really a positive power in that film. In some ways, you could almost say that Blue Velvet is actually more in line in some ways with the later. I've never thought of that. I'm thinking of this now as I say it for the first time, really. But in some ways that it's more in line with like a Mulholland where the characters are not quite as clear-cut in who is the victim and who is the perpetrator as, as I would say it is and should be in, in Firewalk with me, particularly given how they're coming out of a murder mystery where it was treated as this, as this idea of ambiguity of Laura's goodness or badness or whatever. And I think 
the film takes it in a in more of just a purely sympathetic direction, even while showing how tormented and troubled she is and how she does treat her friends poorly, even at sometimes, you know, like drugging Donna almost uh, in encouraging her to be assaulted and all of this stuff. That whole dynamic is still there in that film, but uh, in Blue Velvet, it's it's all sort of mixed together there, even though it, I would say it, by the end it pulls out and we're seeing it again as this kind of heroic, the heroic Jeffrey blowing away the villainous Frank. I think uh, Blue Velvet teases this idea of the ambiguity and the complexity, but it's interesting that what Jeffrey remembers and is haunted by after Frank assaults him. And remember in the original screenplay, this was even going to be an implied rape of, of Jeffrey by Frank, that he is actually haunted by himself hitting Dorothy the night before. That's what he remembers when we cut to his room the next day and he's sitting on the bed with a bruises on his face and we're showing flashbacks. He's not flashing back to Frank uh, for the most part. He's flashing back to him hitting Dorothy in slow motion and crying because he was the one who hurt her. And so that really, I think, plays out that that dynamic that McLaughlin is talking about in that in that quote. Somehow Frank's abuse of him triggers his own guilt about Dorothy. It's like a dis a strange displacement in a way of responsibility, which is particularly compelling. And we very much see that play out in uh, Twin Peaks in a number of ways, but particularly with Laura, where it's like, because of what's happening to her, she'll end up feeling guilty about something that she did. Um, and it may be something that, you know, was bad that she did that she should feel guilty about, but it's interesting that that's w triggered by something that was done to her in a lot of cases. This idea, too, of the power dynamics, I think it plays out in an interesting way with Sandy and Jeffrey where again with this gendered idea of playing with these expectations of the leading man and the woman who is more like the sidekick or the damsel in distress in Dorothy's case and then how sometimes actually they have the power especially over somebody like Jeffrey even in that one moment with Frank where he's weeping as he watches Dorothy perform in that moment suddenly he's vulnerable too although of course that's really not his state throughout most of the movie. With Sandy and Jeffrey, we have the sequence where she's comforting him after he tells her what he experienced, a certain extent. He doesn't, you know, say that Dorothy saw him. It just says what he saw from the closet and all of that. And he's upset. And why are there guys like Frank in the world? She tells him about her dream of the Robins spreading joy and all of that. Uh, I think the Robins in Blue Velvet have a similar role in a way to the angels in uh, Firewalk with me. It's interesting how you can kind of see the the dynamic of of who has the not necessarily the power but like the authority in some way based on who's driving the car. So sometimes Jeffrey's driving her around in this sequence she's driving. She's in the driver's seat and he's sitting in the passenger seat basically crying and uh, he says to her she you're a neat girl and she says so are you. So you have them playing with this gendered idea that I think Lynch has in his world there are sort of two clear poles but no one is fixed at either one of them either in terms of the implications of the gender or also just the the psychological roles that those represent because I don't think it's ultimately what he's doing there is ultimately about gender per se he's just using those archetypes to get at something that's more embedded in everybody and uh, th those different sides of the personality those different roles and he he plays with that with Jeffrey where because of his youth and inexperience he's kind of vulnerable in a way that we might usually identify more in a, in a, with with like a female character.
but but then you know switching back and forth with those modes at times as far as the degree to which the detectives in each film cross over so that they're not just watching from an authoritative position but actually getting entangled in the mystery themselves i think cooper begins to cross over in his dream early on in the uh, in season 1 but really he gets more entangled with everything much more later after the Laura mystery has been resolved, uh, especially to the point where he ends up in the Black Lodge and getting split and all of that. That comes later for him. It's not so much part of the main mystery of the show, whereas Jeffrey is crossing over step by step throughout the film, getting totally entangled with it himself. That's really the, I mean, that's probably the key plot move of this film as a character who's intrigued by a mystery and gets sucked right into the center of it, which is not really the case with Cooper. And they can afford to do that with Cooper in some ways because it's a big ensemble show. They can get other characters entangled with it and leave him as reliable, authoritative figure who has a little bit, is able to keep a little bit of distance. And ironically, it seems more to be Frost who wanted to push Cooper into playing that Jeffrey role on the show eventually. A big moment in Blue Velvet, where I would say Jeffrey crosses over, so to speak, is when Frank meets him for the first time. It's almost like entering into the screen for like the observer of a movie, because even though he has interacted with Dorothy, he's been watching this stuff unfold with Frank from a distance. Frank doesn't know who he is, and suddenly, boom, Frank knows him. And uh, we can take this for granted because you know, we're already so exposed to Frank that it's not like, there's nothing particularly shocking about these two main characters in the movie meeting up. But when we think about it, when we we kind of step back and look at it, it actually is a shocking moment to have this voyeur be confronted with with this uh, arch nemesis, basically. And in the deleted scenes, there was actually a scene where before this moment, he calls Dorothy... Uh, who calls her apartment and Frank is there and the camera is like right close up in his face is doing this weird in and out of focus thing and it's like a nightmare it's like it feels like the mystery man in Lost Highway there's a lot of interesting phone stuff I'll I'll talk about that in a bit because I have some other observations about that but this idea that suddenly the villain from the screen can reach out and get you and that's kind of what Frank is in this film in some ways the boogeyman even the point where he turns around he looks right at the camera and he says you're like me and it's it's so spooky. It's this transgressive moment. And we get much more of that, I think, with Bob in Twin Peaks, both in terms of looking right at the camera and transgressing that boundary and also with the detective character becoming entangled with him at a certain point. Now, of course, another detective on the series is uh, Audrey. And we get that scene in episode five where she hides in the closet, smoking her cigarette, looking out. It's almost like a parody of Blue Velvet in a way where she's watching... Emery kind of seduced this girl into coming to work at the bordello and it's much less threatening than Blue Velvet the fact that she's smoking and nobody can see her makes you know makes it a little more arch and tongue-in-cheek this is an episode written by did I say episode five it's actually episode six so it's written by Harley Payton and uh, I think it's an interesting sort of contrast in his and Lynch's approach but obviously they're calling out directly to Blue Velvet Um, there is a sense in you know in Twin Peaks It's the teens who are the detectives that get too close rather than Cooper. Eventually, you know, finding themselves further inside of what they were originally just spying on. So I I think they use Audrey really well in that way in Twin Peaks as a kind of a Jeffrey surrogate of her own. I think you could even make the argument in some ways that uh, Audrey, she's the most Jeffrey-like character in Twin Peaks in some ways, even more so than Cooper, the the character who 
wants to get into a mystery, is always asking questions, has a kind of charming, eccentric, zany persona, and then finds herself deeply, deeply enmeshed in this dangerous situation. So it's interesting to think of of, of that, because I don't think it's a connection people often make, especially with Kyle McLaughlin right there himself. But in a lot of ways, Audrey is more like Jeffrey than, than Cooper is. Something else in the film that has this fluid kind of feeling that I've been talking about in this section, where you have two worlds kind of interacting, is the way that they use television in Blue Velvet, where you have the images, these noirish images on the TV, kind of disjointed, uh, punched up idea of what noir is, uh, reflecting things like as Jeffrey is coming down the steps, we see uh, shoes going up the steps. Or um, there's a woman putting on lipstick when he's about to go out. It's actually Jennifer Lynch. That's, I think, in the uh, deleted scenes. But, um, you know, this is a similar idea there. And then initially, when the father is having the heart attack in the front yard, we see um, there's like a gun emerging on uh, on the screen. So there's this looming threat, and then boom, he has... The, or I don't think it's a heart attack, but, you know, the, the stroke or whatever he has. You have that there. And then, of course, in Twin Peaks, you have Invitation to Love, where it's similarly like an arched up, kind of punched up pastiche of a soap opera that is also even more overtly reflecting the town. And supposedly Lynch was kind of disappointed with just how parodic uh, the Invitation to Love turned out to be as, as Frost directed it. And he may have had something more in, more in mind that was a little more abstracted like the uh, like in Blue Velvet, or he may have wanted something that was more concrete, but less tongue-in-cheek, winking at the audience quite as much. Something else in these, in both of these works, where you have uh, re- that 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 relational reflective quality, is the presence of uh, insects accompanying some sort of trauma. So, in uh, Blue Velvet, you have the camera going under the dirt right after the the father has collapsed and seeing all these beetles crawling and crunching all over each other and then uh actually in the deleted scenes there's these moments with aunt barbara where she's looking for termites in the house so there's this idea of like a subtle infestation uh of of this dangerous outside force that's played for you know humor she's tapping the wall with her cane she finds the little bugs and puts them on a note for jeffrey when he comes home and he laughs but of course in uh, part eight of twin peaks season three we have the bug creature crawling into the girl's bedroom as she's sleeping and then crawling into her mouth actually just literally like the most literal infestation you can find and it feels like the logical fulfillment of this association and then, as I mentioned, there's interesting stuff with the phones, where phones are a threat, a threat from afar that feels like it is coming closer in some ways. And you see this a lot throughout Lynch. Certainly Lost Highway is the most concrete example of this, uh, where you have the mystery man calling him from his own house on his phone as he's out at a party. Uh, but more vaguely in Mulholland Drive, too, all those scenes of the phone ringing, and that's somehow significant tied into probably the the hit that the character may have put in Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet I think the way where the way that Dorothy is tormented by the phone where Frank is calling at her and yelling over the phone yes sir no sir and now she knows he's going to be coming soon so it's that that ominous that reminds me of how Josie uses the phone in Twin Peaks particularly in season 1 where although we do see it in season 2 with Eckhart where there's she's always on the phone with somebody who is kind of imposing on her in some way, whether it be Catherine or Hank 
or um, she gets a call from Benjamin late in the season. And then eventually, as I said, with Eckhart, where she's, or even when she's talking with Harry and he's asking her questions, she doesn't want to answer. So the way that Josie handles the phone reminds me a lot of, of, um, of Dorothy. And also one final note on the whole family connection stuff, as I mentioned in Twin Peaks, or I'm sorry, in Blue Velvet, the family relations where it's this idea that people have talked about of like, you know, Frank is the evil father and Dorothy is the beautiful mother and Jeffrey is like the Oedipal son. So there's this Freudian aspect to it. it. It actually, there is an element of it where that's a little more overt, which is Dorothy calls Jeffrey Don, which is her husband's name. And every time I've ever watched it, that's what I've thought about. It's like she's making him a surrogate for her husband, even though he's this much younger inexperienced guy but then i realized also her son's name is also don his little donnie they call him that's something i hadn't actually thought about it sort of further compounds the freudian themes and links it more to twin peaks twisted families as well as far as the characters themselves go um as i've discussed with dorothy and laura you know that they have that that sort of power dynamic in common but what makes them different is age and perspective i would say I think Dorothy is a character who she's probably about 30. I think Isabella Rossellini was like 33 at the time. And she has a child. She's gone through life. She's from another country, obviously. They don't talk about that that much, but obviously the actress is Italian. So she's been around. She's seen things. Laura has seen a lot for her, you know, for her youth, but she's been in the same town her whole life. She's very confused about things since she's little. The fact that she had her innocence taken away so young also means, in a way, she never gained the maturity that you usually gain when things are proportioned correctly, I guess. So they're different figures in that way. That is a key distinction, the fact that Laura is a, is a teenager when she dies and that Dorothy is has at least like a decade on her. And Isabella Rossellini in the uh, Mysteries of Love documentary when she talks about how Dorothy is sort of seen in the film when she's naked, she compares it to Francis Bacon, to slabs of meat. They actually show like, you know, butchers kind of a rows of, of carcasses uh, as, they're, as they're interviewing her as, as an illustration. She also talks about the girl fleeing from the napalm in Vietnam, that famous photo of that young girl crying with her arms outstretched. And that's actually why Isabella Rossellini holds her arms out that way. Uh, coming across the lawn at the end of the film when she's all bruised and naked. And this is the film that Roger Ebert, or this is the scene rather that Roger Ebert hated. He thought, why is this serious scene in such a goofy, you know, a movie that doesn't take itself seriously enough? And he was kind of offended by that. And uh, this is actually a scene coming straight from Lynch's childhood where he and I think his brother saw a woman walking through the town uh, naked and distressed. And there was no like, excitement about it. oh look it was like a horror they knew something was wrong and that's i think how nudity is is presented in the film it, the film very it has a very fetishized sense of eroticism where all the charged uh, there's like charged objects but like n nudity and nakedness are not conventionally erotic there maybe a little bit in like the love scenes with dorothy and jeffrey but immediately those are converted to a kind of disturbing violence as well so the the naked the idea of nakedness is like exposure of not just the literal physical body but also somehow 
your your emotional vulnerability as well i think is is played out in that so i found that interesting um i don't know that's a bit of a tangent i don't know how much that would relate to twin peaks because obviously there's not much nudity in the uh, series a little bit in firewalk with me i don't think it's that comparable in that sense the idea of dorothy though as a sort of a predatory woman in some ways towards jeffrey it actually reminded me a little of blackie's relationship with audrey in the show another way in which audrey is like a jeffrey character in some ways she's a, actually a combination i would say of sandy and jeffrey sandy spies like audrey does she's got that kind of sneaky good girl who's who's uh, trying to figure out what her dad's up to, basically, listening in. And I guess you could say Audrey, if you want to trace the arc of her character, she's a Sandy who becomes a Jeffrey when the other Jeffrey is distracted by an official investigatory process. So in in Twin Peaks, unlike Blue Velvet, uh, Cooper has, you know, a professional role to play. So he doesn't he doesn't need to sneak around with Audrey the way Jeffrey needs to sneak around with Sandy. So Sandy has to become that 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 person. And uh, when Sandy's father's talking about what got him into being a detective, he says, like, talking about curiosity, I think. He says, I guess that's what got me into this business. And it seems like both Jeffrey and Sandy have that bug as well. And it leads you to wonder what they're going to become. Like uh, many people have noted, is is Cooper just Jeffrey grown up? Was he a Jeffrey in his youth and now he's kind of found his stride as an FBI agent doing this sort of thing officially. I don't know. I think they're different, significantly different characters in a lot of ways, but it does make you wonder where Jeffrey goes after this, for sure. It's like we're seeing generations of detectives being born, uh, first with like Jeffrey's or Sandy's father and Jeffrey, then maybe Cooper and Audrey and so forth. Something else I noticed with uh, Sandy, or actually I should say with, uh, yeah, with Sandy was there was a... The, there's a sort of a striking image where we see a portrait of her and there's like a uh, on her father's desk I think and there's like a duck in front of it and of course Lynch loves the eye of the duck stuff and this it's just sort of a routine family portrait of the daughter but it almost feels like a little drop in the water anticipating the ripples of Twin Peaks where of course we have this portrait of a blonde teenager that is charged with so much more significance there. Uh, there's also another significant photo in the film which is uh, well much more significant. This photo of Sandy's only significant when you relate it back to Twin Peaks but uh, the the significant one in the film is a Dorothy with the photo of, of little Donnie that she doesn't want uh, Jeffrey to touch it's like he's contaminating it or something but the, the way she caresses the photo in this grief-stricken way um, not just in front of Jeffrey but also when she doesn't know he's there when he's hiding in the closet she takes it out from under the couch and she leans over it almost like worshiping in front of it, it it's very reminiscent of Leland with the photo of Lara grieving in, a, in this very physical way one of the striking interviews in the in the I can't remember which documentary it's in, but on the Criterion disc, Dennis Hopper says he starts with the idea, I think maybe actually Isabella Rossellini says this about him, that he starts off with the idea that it's a love story for Frank, that this isn't uh, just purely some sadistic thing in his case. There's some tenderness that he doesn't know how to deal with, and it so it expresses itself in this vicious, evil way. And I think that idea is something that's played up more and complicated more in Firewalk with me with Leland. Like Frank, more of just a constantly dark figure. But we do get that moment where he comes in and he says, oh, I love you, honey. He's like holding Lara's hand in the in the room when he's feeling guilty. But especially when we compare it to his sort of lovable role in the series and we see this continuum, this idea that in Leland's own mind, he's 
like, you know, in love with his daughters. It's not just this abusive thing. And he tells himself that that's what this is and that, and that that is kind of his revelation, I think, in Fire Walk With Me is the confrontation with the fact of of what he's really been doing, what he's been lying to himself about and and all of that. So that is something that builds off of this, just this little hint that's in Twin Peaks. Like I would say just the scene where Frank is crying uh, watching the the Blue Velvet performance, but we, I, I think when you think of it that way, it's present through all the scenes. I've seen the character in different ways over the years. I've seen him as somebody totally devoid of anything, like just an empty void kind of hurtling through this this world like a black hole, and then also as somebody who actually is experiencing incredibly deep uh pain and emotions and that that is the source of his kind of fury so he's a bit of an enigma in that sense but uh, when you see him as somebody fueled by this pain and this this story that he tells himself or whatever then i think it connects closely to leland in some ways frank is like a combination of bob leland uh, leo even the renaults in a way you know he breaks down with the music, just like Leland, that's the music is what triggers him as well. And of course, to relate it to season three, this is just a little note, but the scene where he's like playing with his hand and, you know, now it's dark and kind of spasming his hand out like that reminds me a lot of Red in uh, season three. It's interesting when Richard is first introduced, I thought, oh, this is like a young Frank Booth, like the way he torments that girl and he's just shouting and crude and all of that. But then in the next episode, when we see him confronted with Red, in some ways, Red seems more like the Frank Booth figure because he's so authoritative. So it's interesting how they split that role up over the different characters in a way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's possible Frank could have been more of an oddball eccentric villain like Red uh, is in that moment. He's not in much of the series, but in that moment, because originally Lynch wanted him to be sucking on helium. So when we see him put the the mask up when you take it down you'd have this high-pitched voice and be speaking like all of his you know fuck you blah 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 all of that with like a high-pitched helium voice and i guess hopper said that he was telling lynch well i don't know about the voice it's what about nitrous oxide like that's something that's sort of an emotional trigger and he was really proud of himself like yeah i i i brought in this deep emotional element and then he thought well you know what though lynch he deals with these like surreal jarring surfaces maybe forget all the emotional undertow if you just changed the voice with the helium, wouldn't that be like the weirdest, creepiest thing ever? So it would be a different movie, put it that way, if if he was sucking helium in those scenes. Something from the deleted scenes that struck me, because I want to talk a little bit about Jeffrey before moving on to the, the setting from the characters, is uh, that in the deleted scenes, we first see Jeffrey watching in this like weird cellar area of like a school building on the college as this guy is is about to like rape a woman and he's just watching and not saying anything and like the way they shoot is he's like staring like very voyeuristic there isn't like a nervousness of like oh no what should i do like what's going on and like maybe like an undertow of curiosity that he's he's like bugged out eyes looking and it just if that had been the introduction to this character it would be a whole different thing i think they structured it more uh correctly um because this it's just like the introduction is like this is not somebody you feel like you want to sympathize with throughout the movie. Not that they can't give him shadings or make him complex, but just like the whole way it's played. And he does, as he's like leaving, as someone is calling him, he says, hey, leave her alone to the guy. And it looks like it the, it's, it ends the, the assault, basically. But nonetheless, just the, the shot of him 
that is introduced there is like that would have been quite a way to bring him in. Something I noticed so watching those like college scenes in the deleted scenes and uh, on the you know I think they show some of the documents as student documents or whatever in uh, something the character I noticed was born in 63 which would make him near the end of college which I always thought he was like a freshman off at his first semester or two of school and brought back against his will Uh, but no apparently he's he's well I don't know that's assuming the film takes place in 85 he's like 21 or 22 but he would be nearing the end of his uh, college years so that's kind of a a different uh, spin on it than I thought. And the generational aspect is interesting too. I'd put that at like the very beginning of Generation X, but in reality, McLaughlin was like a very much a boomer. He's born in the late 50s. And I realized he's actually closer in age to Isabella Rossellini than he is to Laura Dern, which is interesting. It's great casting, like it works in the film, but that is kind of interesting to think about that in a way he was more a peer of Rossellini than Dern. But yeah, I mean, in, in, in the context of the movie, I would say he's like a early Gen Xer and the, the Sandy character certainly is. And that leads well into Twin Peaks where we have all those Gen X teenagers who act like they're like silent generation, you know, 50s kids. Aside from the premise and uh, really related, you know, ingrained in the premise itself is this idea of uh, the setting in both these works uh, having a commonality. And it's funny because in a lot of ways, they're very different. You have West Coast and East Coast you have uh, kind of really remote and rural versus something that is more urban in Blue Velvet's case. Lynch says in the Mysteries of Love documentary that what he was looking for with Blue Velvet was a small city with quiet neighborhoods, which is an interesting description. So he actually says city in there, even though people talk about it as suburban or sometimes small town. Really, it is a city. He says also it didn't look southern, which was good because they filmed it in North Carolina. He wanted it to be a little more north. But you do get some of that southern flavor in it um it doesn't look like a cool place it looks like kind of a hot place which it was you know i think they shot it in the summer too so i'm sure it was hot down in north carolina but you see uh these tall buildings there's a shot it was filmed by the way in i believe wilmington north carolina and there actually is a lumberton i drove through it recently actually on a road trip back from florida so i was like oh lumberton okay that's uh, That's pertinent right now because I was preparing this episode, but there is a sense here of, I think small city is the way to describe it because this isn't like skyscrapers and this, but it's crowded streets and clustered homes and a lot of old warehouses and things. It's, It's not, it doesn't have that like leafy pleasantness that you'd associate with, with just a purely like all-American small town. And I think in Twin Peaks's case, you occasionally get a little bit of an urban feel, maybe with the department store or the nightlife at times. But even there, you know, when you're inside at One-Eyed Jack's, when the casino's going, maybe you can kid yourself. But that's surrounded by woods. You have to take a speedboat over the Canadian border. So there's always a sense of the woods and the rural in Twin Peaks. Of course, there's also Dorothy's apartment building, which it's interesting to note is called Deep River Apartments, which is later referenced in Mulholland Drive, where Diane says that she's from Deep River, Ontario. I like the layout of this uh, building where you have the stairs. You have to go up the outside stairs to get to the apartments. It makes the approach more interesting, I think, than it would be if he was just going up an elevator or up up inside stairs. And Dorothy's apartment herself, itself is this very distinctive place where uh, you, you kind of, I, I don't think there's anything quite like that space in Twin Peaks, except maybe, I mean, when we get that shot of the Hayward house with the, the couch and Bob coming in over it, they kind of capture it, but that's just more that one little fixed view. Like there's, there's, 
I'm not sure there's any domestic space in Twin Peaks that is as well-defined and well-used as the Dorothy's apartment is here. It's just such a, it's one of like the key locations in uh, a lynch work really in that, in that way. Uh, of course she slides the knife behind there. You got the radiator in there, like a racer head, <laughs> nice little touch. There's also a lot of industry in this film where he's going out and following Frank around and we see this almost cartoonish warehouse. Like they, they show how they made those lights in the, the making of documentary, just the spotlight on the side of the factory with the pistons going up and down. It's just, sort of people waving these cardboard props in front of it. Very reminiscent, though, of the industrial plants in Episode 7, the Mark Frost episode of, um, of of Twin Peaks, the Season 1 finale, which in some ways feels like a very Hill Street Blues episode, but of course you also have those types of locations, those factories and warehouses and processing plants and stuff in, in Lynch. You know, he takes photographs of this stuff uh, does does whole I think he's done whole books on like abandoned factories and stuff, and of course in both Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks you have that mix of industry with nature that you get right away in Twin Peaks with the credits of the sawmill going and then we cut from the sawmill to the woods. I think it's almost something more present in the pilot than in later episodes, uh, other than I guess that Frost one. But in general, you kind of stick more with the woodsy vibe and they lose a little bit of the touch with the industrial that was also a an interest uh, for Lynch. And in Blue Velvet, that surreal nature is present right away where you see the name Lumberton, you hear the radio jingle, and it's like a chainsaw starting, like they're cutting down wood. But then you're getting the shot of this like waterfront that doesn't, you wouldn't associate at all with like a, a logging town, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that's what's going on here. But of course, Jeffrey is beaten up in a lumber yard when he wakes up the morning after Frank's beating. He's surrounded by lumber so that is a direct link right to twin peaks and the pilot and then of course there's shots of the logging truck passing in front of arlene's diner just like we'll eventually see the logging trucks passing in front of the double r so the idea of this as a logging town is is important to lynch even if it is questionable given the location i'd actually be interested to know with lumberton the actual lumberton in north carolina if that is a, a sort of staple industry or not and speaking of the arlene's diner you have all of this dialogue about mystery that takes place in that diner it's like a safe place for the characters to plot it doesn't have as much atmosphere as um the double r mostly because we just sit with that one booth like we only ever see them in the booth they don't show them going up to the counter or anything like that another example of how Little ideas, little images in Blue Velvet are expanded and grown in Twin Peaks. In this space and others, you have this 50s vibe. As I mentioned, the teens dress like it's the 50s. The, the girls are all wearing sweaters. The guys are kind of dressed up. Um, Laura Dern's got a picture of Montgomery Clift on her wall. So that, they definitely that's a thread that they continue right into the pilot with all the bikers and the James Dean posturing and everything going on in Twin Peaks. And then uh, there's a lot of like homemade kind of kitschy things like a police sign there's a wooden mountain on the desk of the police station just things that make it look more uh, less like a sort of a non-descript mundane everyday place give it a little touch of the storybook almost that lynch brings to it and of course these are all homemade by him like they actually show him making these signs himself not even having like a prop man do it but just go up with himself with tape and little knife labeling things and carving it in and all of that another design motif like that is the antlers in the middle of the slow club sign that's a little unusual there's all these touches i almost feel like it's funny that blue velvet came first because 
it could just lean into the North Carolina atmosphere, but Lynch is throwing in these more geographically idiosyncratic details, like he almost wishes he was shooting this in Washington. And so it kind of anticipates Twin Peaks in that sense. There's also skulls outside of the slow cup. There's kind of a Western motif there. Like this is somewhere, this is like a, a, a saloon where the outlaws go. And uh, in a deleted scene, we actually see that the slow club is right next to a truck stop. The panning shot as the car drives by is very reminiscent of another deleted scene from Firewalk With Me in, in Missing Pieces where we see them arriving at Partyland, the club that they're all uh, going to. And we see logging a whole fleet of logging trucks going by and, and big trucks kind of parked nearby there too. So it's this idea of like the truckers, you know, what does it say? It's a world full of truckers in season three. That's always a sign of trouble for Lynch. But overall, the slow club, I think, is most like the roadhouse where characters gather and watch these performances and have these moments between them. So that's another location from Blue Velvet that is expanded and grown in, uh, in Twin Peaks. And it's also a place where we have these elegant singers kind of singing to these this odd crowd assembled there of local yokels or whatever it's this idea of mixing glamour with the cliches of a small time we see we see that too on the uh, sign for lumberton where it's like a woman smiling and waving her hand and then it's like lumberton you know with the sound of the sawing wood i just want to briefly run down some motifs and minor characters uh, that that are common between the two we have a billowing curtain uh, opening blue velvet much like the curtains in uh, Twin Peaks but different colors blue in this case red in that one and they also play with red and blue lighting on the singer Isabella Rossellini in this film and Julie Cruz in Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me Sandy has a lamp looks like it's got a blue rose on it so thought that was interesting I hadn't noticed that before there's a big man in plaid holding an axe in uh, Jeffrey's father's hardware store so Definitely a Twin Peaks looking figure there. There's a deleted scene where the mother is getting a shot from the doctor in her living room. Obviously very reminiscent of Sarah getting the shot in the living room in uh, in the pilot. There's actually a funny exchange in this where uh, Jeffrey says, everyone in my family is sick. And Aunt Barbara says, I'm not sick. And then they shoot the whole thing from behind. They don't do a reverse shot. It's just Kyle McLaughlin picks up his finger and gently points it at his head like she's sick in the head. And she makes a fist and she says, oh, we'll see who stays in my will. And I love that moment. It's so deft and natural and completely goofy and corny, uh, but totally works. Like uh, stuff like that. I think you get a little more of in the deleted scenes, particularly with that character, the Aunt Barbara uh, it's interesting to see her in this role versus the kind of creepy, ominous persona she adopts for uh, Firewalk with me. And of course, she's also the Marble Rye lady from Seinfeld and uh, Happy Gilmore's grandmother. So back to uh, the connections between Twin Peaks and uh, and Blue Velvet. We don't want to expand the universe too much. So let's get the Adam Sandler movies too. Another motif that, that they have is this idea of people stuck in hospitals as a plot point. So you have the father in this film all strapped into his bed and then in the series, of course, you have Renette, you have Nadine, you have uh, One Point Jacoby. They love to put characters in hospitals. So here again is something where it's almost like they cannibalized the imagery of Blue Velvet for Twin Peaks. Not that you don't see characters in hospitals in plenty of movies, but specifically that idea of somebody just being stuck there, laid up for this time. And that being something that so much of the plot revolves around feels very snatched out of there. The father tries to communicate from his bed without speaking, much like Renette will in the uh, in the series there's also a morgue scene where they're going and checking on uh the ear and if anybody had a body that is was missing an ear 
that uh, connects to that scene in the pilot as well. Again, I do think if you did like a chart or something, the pilot would have the most sort of blue velvet references per capita as uh, as any other episode. At least, you know, the other ones, for the most part, would be drawing on stuff that the pilot already related, like locations and stuff like that. Although something that relates to not just later in Twin Peaks, but something we actually never got to see that we were supposed to is the two Eds, these characters who work for uh, Jeffrey's father it's uh, one guy is blind and the other one kind of walks around with him and taps on his shoulder to tell him how many people, how many fingers people are putting up. And they make it really obvious how he's doing it. And Jeffrey's like, I still don't get how you know that, how many fingers I have up. But this sort of partnership reminding me of Tim and Tom's taxidermy, characters who were cut from Twin Peaks. They were supposed to drive somebody, I think they were supposed to drive John Justice Wheeler to the airport or something. And it was Tim Pinkle and his brother Tom, who was played by David Lynch. I always suspected it because I saw pictures and it looked like uh, Lynch in the picture and like some some sunglasses and some weird makeup or something. But it was it, I had it confirmed somewhere that it was uh, I read it somewhere that it was him. So and the blind character is the one who always drives the car in this film. They have the blind character being the one who rings things up and checks something to find out how much it is and just does all these things that you would think the other person would do. There was a deleted scene from Blue Velvet where there's a woman dancing on a stage with veils and all this, just like uh, Lana does at the Miss Twin Peaks contest. I also found it funny, the boyfriend of Sandy in the film, who who she eventually breaks up with for Jeffrey, is named Mike. And he's got like a blonde shock of hair. He's like an angry jock getting jilted, just like the Mike on the show does by Donna when she leaves him for James. So I thought that was funny. They didn't even bother to change the character's name. They basically just transplanted him into uh, Twin Peaks. Although... There's a deleted dinner scene that shows he's a little weirder and more obsessive than the Mike of the series. He's like constantly taking vitamin supplements and talking about how important his body is and just acting kind of strange overall. Also funny, they have them watching a chair pulling race on TV in this in this deleted sequence where literally a bunch of women in like big poofy dresses are dragging armchairs across a field by a rope uh lynch really squeezed in some wackier elements into blue velvet that he i think for the most part he ended up cutting like also at the slow club they have this ridiculous comedy act where a chicken and egg are switching places as this guy is uh telling these ridiculous to even call them jokes as a stretch and then there's like a dog that's eating out of a dog food bowl uh just like on the stage with everyone watching him. So there's all these goofy elements that he shot for Blue Velvet, didn't put in the film, but that feel like they belong in Wild at Heart or on the air down the line. And perhaps Twin Peaks' second, uh, second, you know, back half of the second season as well. Although I think some of this stuff goes even further than that does. Also in that deleted scene with uh, Mike and Sandy at their house, we learn that Jeffrey takes his coffee black. Although we may hear that elsewhere too in the movie, I'm not sure, but... That's a little Cooper touch there for sure. And then finally, the last thing I want to mention is the name of the street that Dorothy's apartment is on, which is treated very ominously. Aunt Barbara says, don't go there. And then they show the camera panning up to reveal that's where her apartment is. It's Lincoln, Lincoln Street. Others have pointed out that uh, Frank Booth, last name Booth, who of course, you know, John Wilkes Booth killed Abraham Lincoln, but also this idea of Lincoln and the ominousness surrounding him reminds me of part eight and the Lincoln lookalike woodsman 
kind of going around and terrorizing people. So I, I don't know why that is, where that comes from. Maybe Lynch is like, a, in his mind, pennies are unlucky rather than lucky, but that certainly struck me on, on kind of a lighter note to sort of end those comparisons on, I guess, from all the deeper, more rich psychological stuff to something as sort of head scratching as that, you know, it wouldn't be Lynch without some of that. So that's it for the main coverage. A couple more sections I wanted to include here. First up is this Twin Peaks Reflections analysis, where uh, this was part of a series where I took different storylines from the original Twin Peaks cycle, the pilot through Firewalk with me, and I connected them to different episodes of season three or different Lynch films or different uh, spin-off material like the books that were written. And in this case, I connected to a Lynch film, obviously, uh, Blue Velvet, and the storyline was Jean's Revenge. So here's what I've got for that. So this storyline, Jean Framing Cooper, is in some ways a spin-off of an earlier one, which we've already discussed on its own, which is Cocaine and Twin Peaks, the whole drug trade in season one, but has more of a personal aspect. It also relates to the Audrey kidnapping plot, because Jean was involved with that. This is the episode where it all turns, because... Bobby gets a picture he sent by Ben to follow Hank around. So he gets pictures of all of them meeting at Dead Dog Farm, Jean, Hank, Ernie, and uh, the, the Canadian Mountie. And so he's able to pass that along to Ben, but Audrey also gets a look. She takes it to Cooper, and Cooper shows it to Denise. So now they know who's setting him up. That's why it's really pertinent to this episode. A quick summary of how the storyline, uh, or what the premise of the storyline is, uh, I would say furious that his two brothers were murdered after an FBI agent came to town, even though the agent did not kill either of them, Canadian crime lord Jean Renault decides to set his nemesis up with a phony drug deal until Cooper turns the tables. The characters involved besides Jean and Cooper uh, and the only mentioned Jacques and Bernard, who are the you know, fuel for the revenge but are already dead when the storyline begins, We've got Agent Roger Hardy, the Canadian Mountie, Denise, Ernie, Hank, Gordon, Hawk, Audrey, and Harry. It lasts really only from episodes 17 to 20, but the fallout is mentioned and then resolved in episodes 21 and 25. So what happens over the stretch of this is it begins as Cooper's uh, being about Cooper's suspension. So uh, FBI agent from Internal Affairs comes to town and... Uh, tells Cooper that he's suspended without pay and Cooper's shocked, wants to find out why they are concerned that he went up to One-Eyed Jacks and a bunch of people wound up dead, but they seem even more concerned about uh, drugs. And so that kind of becomes the focus. He's got to prove that uh, the missing cocaine that was part of a sting operation that the Canadian Mountie was setting up, that Cooper didn't take that. And of course it's planted in his car so that it'll be the traces of it will be discovered there. And uh, the Canadian Mountie himself is in on this, as, as mentioned, he's caught in that photo with Jean and the others. So when Cooper finds this out, he uh, sets up Ernie as the guy who's going to go in and pretend to be the buyer. And that becomes a hostage situation. He goes in and this becomes the confrontation between him and Jean where Jean tells him, you know, you maybe you brought the evil with you to town. Maybe the darkness will go if, if you die. Like, he, he romanticizes what Twin Peaks was as this place that was basically quietly run by the criminals, and now Cooper is ruining this, and he's upset. But he takes it with a very moralistic tone, which is interesting. And then Denise 
is the Redeemer. She comes in dressed as a waitress from the Double R. She's got a gun around her leg. Cooper grabs it, shoots down Jean, and now all of the Renaults are dead, except for Jean-Michel, who we meet in season three. So this is a storyline that wasn't really supposed to happen. I'm pretty sure this is the element that they imported in to fill the gap between the Laura Palmer investigation and Wyndham Earl emerging because they had planned to do a Cooper-Audrey romance at this time. And for reasons we've already discussed extensively on uh, this podcast, on the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast, uh, Kyle MacLachlan did not want to do it. So they had to nix that storyline, come up with something else. And this is pretty grade Z, you know, genre stuff of the FBI agent set up with drugs and blah, blah, blah. Drugs on the show are interesting because... Um, you would think of them as sort of a Frostian element coming from Hill Street Blues and cop shows that he'd worked on, very mundane. But then, of course, uh, Lynch has a history with this subject as well in Blue Velvet, which is the uh, other peach, uh, P- Lynch, or I just combined Peaks and Lynch, the other Peaks or Lynch work, in this case a Lynch work, that I want to link up this storyline to. So Blue Velvet We remember it more for like the sexual pathology, this crazy character who's kidnapped this woman's child and husband, has cut off the husband's ears, forcing her to submit to him. He goes over and plays sexual games with her all the time and rapes her and and is then tormenting Jeffrey when he gets involved, this young man. So that's, that's kind of what we remember the movie for. But of course... One of the plot mechanics in it is, is are these drug deals, this fact that somehow this guy has cover from the police, from actually the partner of uh, the character Sandy's uh, father, because he's involved with these drug deals. So there's a point where Jeffrey is following him around from a distance, taking photos. He walks in and out of buildings with briefcases and different disguises, and then showing these photos to Sandy's father, who of course is shocked because this is his partner. And I discussed in the uh, Blue Velvet episode I just released this idea that maybe Sandy's father is in on it too and is hoping that he doesn't get uncovered and trying to play it off. Like, there's some interesting hints that that's the case, but it's really mostly in my imagination. But fun to play with. But this is one of the most conventional elements, I would say, of uh, Blue Velvet's criminal milieu. This idea that they're all seedy drug dealers with corrupt cops going about the derelict side of town and breaking hookers' legs and, you know, uh, taking poppin' pills. And and in uh, Frank's case, he takes uh, nitrous oxide. So he's got his own drug use in addition to being a drug dealer. So it's funny to think how Lynch uses this as kind of a rote thing. Like, he himself was not big into drugs. Like, you know, surprisingly to a lot of people, he really got his high from meditation. So he, he wasn't really into that world that much. Dennis Hopper certainly was, who plays Frank. He could bring some of his own knowledge. In fact, he was the one who suggested the nitrous oxide to Lynch as the kind of prop that Frank would be using when he came over to torment Dorothy. It's interesting to see how a lot of times we'll make this comparison between mid-season two and the the pure Lynch of a blue of blue velvet or something, and make this contrast of like, well, it fell into these cliches and this rote storytelling of just genre conventions and at the same time like this is something that lynch was already working with in his own work and of course as noted i already discussed uh, cocaine and twin peaks as its own storyline and connected that to a uh, part six of the return but this storyline the jean getting revenge on cooper also relates to blue velvet because of that sense of kind of personal investment and and fury and uh, vengeance in a sense where 
Frank is so jealous and and uh, heartsick in a sick way over Dorothy that he kidnaps her family. He's just treating her in this horrible way and threatening her if she tries to commit suicide, he'll kill her husband. And uh, so the drug aspect is kind of a cover for this psychological motive. In Jean's case, this ridiculous desire for vengeance against Cooper had really not much to do with his brother's death. And in Frank's case, this wanting to control and manipulate Dorothy, who just had the misfortune of coming into his sight. Either I think there's a suggestion that maybe your husband Don was sort of involved with their business because they say something at some point about I can't remember exactly what it was. It might be in a deleted scene. They say something about her husband's involvement. But for whatever reason, she came across as radar and everything just went downhill. It's it's one of those things where the origin point is almost mythic, just as with Jean and his description of Twin Peaks was and how Cooper brought the darkness with him. It kind of takes on this whole other mythic tone. I think it's the same with Frank and Dorothy. It happens before the film begins and there's this sense that she's always lived in this misery and this sorrow. And yet, of course, really probably only a few weeks pass and then her whole life before that. But somehow she's lived in this tragedy forever. And that's that Lynchian sense of time. And finally, here's an extra section. Doesn't directly tie into Twin Peaks in any way, but uh, I wanted to include it here. It was part of the podcast I recorded for patrons a couple years ago, talking about the special features on the Criterion disc, uh, beyond the deleted scenes that I already discussed that I thought related to Twin Peaks. And aside from Blue Velvet Revisited, the documentary, which I covered in its own episode, as I already mentioned a couple times on the Lost in the Movies feed. But here are my thoughts on what else is on that Criterion disc. I want to talk about some of the other supplements that were on the Criterion disc, because they were really fascinating to watch. And I did already weave a lot of the deleted scenes into my discussion here. Blue Velvet doesn't feel like it's a film that could have many missing pieces. It seems really tight and economical in a way that that feels like it was designed that way. But it does have a fair amount of missing pieces, like 53 minutes of footage there. That said, they're more plot-oriented, especially early on, than like the Fire Walk With Me ones are, or the Inland Empire ones for that matter. Or actually from the sound of it, the Wild at Heart deleted scenes. I haven't seen those ones but supposedly those go on some pretty crazy tangents as well. Oddly enough, though, the Blue Velvet assembly of deleted scenes begins out of sequence. It starts with a bar scene that uh, would actually come at the end of the collection if they were being strictly chronological, but it makes a striking first scene. For one thing, it sets a digressive tone because it starts with this guy playing a guitar and this guy's sort of chanting along, talking about his dog, and it's so unlike anything we've seen in Blue Velvet that it throws us off kilter right away. And uh, then also, because they put the scene first, Lynch is able to end the assembly with Dorothy on the roof, this beautiful sequence where she's up there, where they're playing the horn version of Mysteries of Love. And I really love this sequence. It's my favorite deleted scene from the movie, I would say. This is maybe only two-thirds into the movie at this point. So apparently they didn't cut that many scenes from later in the film, although there's some stuff that they must have shot and left out because uh, there's like, we see some outtakes at a certain point of Laura Dern improvising some dialogue and people laughing that's in a scene that we don't see in the deleted scenes. And also there's an interview with the guy who plays the yellow man who has these like incredible striking blue eyes, by the way. You don't totally notice in the film. You see he's got kind of intense eyes, but in this interview in like HD, oh my God, it pops right out at you. And he's very colorful in his his recounting of his experience from shooting the film. But anyways, he describes a sequence where he's like 
tormenting Dorothy and she slaps him. And we see something like that, but mostly intercut with shots of Jeffrey in the closet. So there may also have been some missing footage because Lynch opens this whole collection with a statement that uh, he says, it's like amazing grace. It was lost and now it's found. So this was footage that he didn't think he had. So maybe there was more that uh, that you know he could have had but but didn't have access to. It's funny that Lynch has now done four of these deleted scenes assemblies. It's almost like a genre that he's invented uh, pretty much on his own. I don't know of anyone else who's been doing this. Like obviously people release deleted scenes and they release director's cuts, which is very much its own thing. This is a very different phenomenon where you have, I've seen people call it a sidequel where it's like a whole side movie that's kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the play by Tom Stoppard, where the characters, these minor characters from Hamlet are just wandering around the castle. Or actually, I don't think they're even characters from Hamlet. I think they're like characters who aren't even in the play, who he, who are just happen to be wandering around the castle and missing all the big events. And it's kind of a funny idea. So this idea is present in all of these films because we're missing the big events of the movie, but they're kind of referenced obliquely. And still these experiences hold together to the point where I'd be careful how I say that because people watch them and they're like confused and like, what is this thing I'm watching? But they do think they're watching a movie. Like if, if they make this mistake, they think like people download the missing pieces and think that it's Firewalk with me and they don't often like it because they're like, why are there all these random scenes? But like, it still kind of flows in a way where they wouldn't just think they're watching a movie. The color and the sound is nice and the, the scenes are cut like back to back. Like there's a few blackouts between them, but often they flow into one another. I would be interested to see somebody actually do like a study of this this type of thing. And if anyone else has even made like a deleted scenes assembly that kind of stands as its own work, it's interesting to think about. Lynch ends this whole compilation with a title card that says, when it came time to compile the list of actors and extras from the deleted scenes, only the following names could be found. I'm so sorry that every name could not be found and I want to apologize to everyone who is in these scenes and whose name is not in the credits. Everyone did such a great job. And it ends with uh, a lady on the stairs uh, walking up as, or walking uh, down as uh, Jeffrey is going up in the bug man outfit and she looks at him and thinks he's the exterminator and says, well, it's about time you came. Great way to end these long, uh, long lost scenes as a collection. So he made this eight years before the Criterion, which is how I saw him because I was wondering, I thought I had seen the Criterion disc, but uh, apparently I hadn't. I rented something else in like early 2018 that had the deleted scenes on it because they had come out before that. So uh, I had some nice surprises for me on this this Criterion disc that I wasn't expecting. So the Mysteries of Love documentary I'd seen before, it's from 2002. But then they had interviews with the Wilmington crew and cast from about 2017 to 2018. They talk about how they had ants on ice that they then had to pour out on the ear. They talk about how they made the ear uh, the, in Blue Velvet, and the guy still has the prop with him. It's got Lynch's hair on it. He actually swept it up from like a barber shop and, and glued it to the ear, the, the, the prop guy. And they show like a where the where all the weeds were where uh, Kyle McLaughlin picks up the ear and it's like a football field now now so uh that that was kind of interesting to see and uh, he speculates that this ear may have been the first use of silicone as a as a special effect no idea if that's true that would be surprised I would have thought that would have been around more for those purposes but uh that was what he thought now on the other hand of the opposite of synthetic 
Apparently the matter that's on the floor around Frank Booth after he shot is real human brain that they got shipped from West Germany because somebody had a connection there. Imagine whoever you are and you give your brain to science or whatever and it ends up, I mean, I guess that's not a bad legacy. You're part of Blue Velvet, but man, that's crazy. So that, I guess, was a lot of work to clean up. And uh, they talk about, they give a detailed story, one guy, of finding the work lamp, which I thought was interesting. So by the work lamp, I mean the lamp that Dean Stockwell holds, turns on and shines on his face as he lip syncs to In Dreams, the Roy Orbison song. And I'd heard various stories. Lynch says that uh, Dean Stockwell just picked it up absentmindedly and turned it on. And someone else in, I think, the Mysteries of Love documentary says, oh, um, you know, Lynch picked it up. I think the cinematographer says, yeah, Lynch saw it. But this guy tells a really, this is like a, I think a prop guy on the show, on the uh, film, tells like a really in-depth story. It's like five minutes long of how he looked over the whole trailer and finally he found this work lamp and he brought it out dramatically and lit himself up and came out from behind the curtains and Lynch was jumping up and down and this it's like if this guy's bullshitting like this is the like I'm I'm giving him the the W anyways because this is the most in-depth detailed bullshitting I've ever heard like how he tells this story and finally there's an interview uh on here as well with Angelo Badalamenti who they've almost made a routine of these now he did the one for the Twin Peaks Gold Box then he did a new one for Firewalk With Me where he tells some of the similar stories of like writing Laura Palmer on the on the piano and then he did one from Holland Drive where he talks about going out to this this strange house down a long winding drive in New Jersey to meet with this mobster who he based the character that he played in Mulholland Drive on. And then in this one, he, he talks about how him and Lynch first met. And it's just, it's, he's a wonderful storyteller. So I always enjoy these interviews. And uh, in this case, one thing that struck me was he talks about how there was like an Eastern European air that uh, kind of got into the music when they uh, recorded the orchestra in, actually, no, I'm sorry, that's Lynch who says that in another thing. But they're talking about the recording of the soundtrack, and Lynch says that he and Angelo went to Czechoslovakia when it was still like a communist country behind the Iron Curtain. Everything was very sort of threadbare, and there was this gorgeous quality to the air that uh, got into the music somehow. And of course, that plays out later with the Poland stuff and Inland Empire and all of that. And that's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Dollar a month will get you this full archive of these 100 podcasts that I put out. Uh, 100th episode still forthcoming with a whole bunch of film reviews, uh, plus character advances for the Twin Peaks character series. And then uh, $5 a month, you will get uh, ongoing uh, back parts of all of the Twin Peaks conversations month to month. So definitely check those out. Uh, Check out those rewards if you like this work, you know, just uh, throw a little this way. And as far as the next episode of Twin Peaks Cinema goes, we're ending this season now. This uh, was the Lynch first season, January to March, three films. Uh, Mulholland Drive, Eraserhead, and Blue Velvet, talking about their relationships to Twin Peaks. And the next three months, the next season, is going to be something a little different, but very deeply related. It's still a couple Lynch films and a non-Lynch film in there, mixed together. And the thread this time that I'm focusing on is Mary Sweeney, Lynch's editor. So I'm calling this Sweeney's Road Home. 
uh, talking about her films that she collaborated with him on, uh, all of which involve a kind of, uh, well, you'll see, they have a kind of uh, through line through them, I think, in some ways. But we're going to start with one that is very much a Lynch film. You'll recognize it from the audio clip, so I won't give too much away, but this is one of the films she edited for him, Mary Sweeney. And uh, yeah, in a way, we're continuing the Lynch verse uh, uh, theme with this as well, even though it's a new season. So here's what's in store for April. Someone broke in and taped us while we slept. Is that you? Are both of them you? We have to get out of here. Why didn't you tell me anything? It's been a pleasure talking to you. 